Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The Greenville Oaks Church of Christ seeks all who need Jesus and together are becoming His fully devoted followers, encouraging and equipping people to love God, love people, and serve others in an ever-growing way of life. Find out more about Greenville Oaks or connect with us online at greenvilleoaks.org. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Colin Packer. church. We are uh, blessed to be able to worship together this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you, beginning of our lesson, to open to Luke chapter 8. I want to read a story of Jesus' encounter with uh, a person in Luke chapter 8, and then we'll dig into that sermon, into the sermon in just a moment. Uh, I want to begin reading in Luke chapter 8, verse 26. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven, away, uh, driven by the demon into solitary places. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Perhaps you have a few questions about a story like this as well. We'll dig into those in just a moment, but I want to open our time this morning with, with prayer as we ask God to impart wisdom and encouragement into our lives. Father, we uh, come before you this morning excited about coming in front of your word and asking that you would deliver a word on our behalf that's necessary for us. God, would you uh, leave us with a feeling of your presence this morning and the fact that you've spoken? Would you also encourage us, challenge us, do whatever you must in us so that we might grow closer to looking like Jesus in the week ahead? I pray this morning that you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. And it's in the name of Jesus that we all pray together. Amen. Recently, I, uh, I picked up a book that I hadn't picked up since the ninth grade. That book title is To Kill a Mockingbird. I saw that it had topped the list of one of the greatest books in American literature, and I thought, why not give it another try? I, I appreciate the fact that in middle school and high school, we pass off the great American novels and those written by others uh, to our children. 
Although I think sometimes I, I was more inoculated against them because it seemed more an assignment at the time. And so I decided, why not go back to some of these classics? Why not see what I missed so many years ago? I never really learned to read fiction for pleasure. And that's something I want to do in the years ahead. So I picked it up again to see what all the fuss was about. It's an amazing book. It's a relevant book to the issues of life in 2019 as much as it was back then when it was written. So when I picked up reading in Luke 8, 26, uh, my imagination went to that book and to a character in that book named Boo Radley. You remember Boo Radley from To Kill a Mockingbird? Perhaps you need some remembering as well as I did a few uh, months ago. Boo Radley is the recluse in Maycomb, Alabama, who lives on the same street as the main characters, Jim and Scout Finch. And as his name suggests, Boo is a mysterious character who no one knows much about. But when we don't know much about someone, we are not bashful to fill in assumptions about them, are we? So he dominates the imaginations of the children of Maycomb. He's the town ghost, the town phantom. The word around town is that Boo got in trouble with the law and his father had imprisoned him in the house as punishment. And he wasn't heard or seen from for 15 years when finally the story comes out that he had stabbed his father with a pair of scissors. And although people suggested that Boo was crazy, old Mr. Radley refused to have his son committed to an asylum. So everyone knew that Boo lived in the house, but the mystery about him lived on. And as I read Luke chapter 8, that's how I imagine this demon-possessed man. I imagine that everyone in the Gerasenes knew the legend of the cemetery outside of Gerasenes. Fathers had told their children about the legend of that graveyard and encouraged them not to go near. Older kids had scared younger kids around campfires and at sleepovers about the legend of that cemetery and this character who lived in it. I imagine uh, these very disciples who waited in the boat had heard stories about this place over in Gentile territory where this beast, this monster, this ghoul had haunted this cemetery, a bedeviled lunatic who was naked, powerful enough to break free from chains and use the tombs as his home. It sounded like an urban legend, but this one they find out checks out. And though this was a legend, the people who lived in Galilee were sure there was some truth to this story. People had been warned, and sure enough, when they come across the sea in the midst of a storm that was calmed right before this story, the disciples come, and after all, who doesn't love a good scapegoat story to place all of our fears and anxieties on? And sure enough, they come on shore, and this was the creature they'd been told about. Now, the stories have been told, and of course, the women had also sent their husbands outside of the house. This was no legend. There were people who had seen this character before. The, the, the women had caused their husbands to go out with weapons and chains to bind him, but it was clear that those chains were not strong enough, strong enough to keep and overpower the power that was in him. See, legends tend to exaggerate the truth, but when we pick up this story, we realize this is as true as the legend seen. So needless to say, the disciples stayed in the boat as Jesus walked ashore at the beginning of the story. But I know what some of you are thinking. Demon possession? I mean, is that really a thing? And I know why you're thinking that, because you've seen episodes of one of my favorite cartoons as well growing up, Scooby-Doo. Back in the day, I was a huge fan of the show, Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Scooby-Doo and the gang, Shaggy, Fred, Daphne, and Velma were a highlight of Saturday mornings in our house. Our 
there any other fans out there this morning who loved a good episode of Scooby-Doo? Maybe we'll see some YouTube connections today. If you've never watched Scooby-Doo, let me let you in on the episodes that happen every time you'll see. Scooby-Doo is a dog who can talk, kind of, along with his four teenage friends, members of an investigative team called the Mystery Incorporated, who drove around in their psychedelically decorated van named the Mystery Machine. They find themselves in town plagued by a ghost, a spook, a monster, or otherwise supernatural creature. And Scooby and the kids commence with an investigation, examining clues, and interviewing townspeople. During the investigation, the gang often has scary encounters with the ghost or the monster. Eventually, the gang creates a trap, though, for the creature, and usually sprung at the end of a comedic and extended chase scene. Having captured the creature... Scooby-Doo and his friends unmask the monster, revealing it to not be a monster or a ghost, but someone from the town who was using the creature or the mask to scare people away from noticing some kind of criminal activity. And the show would often end with the masked crook going off to jail lamenting. I would have gotten away with, with it too if it weren't for you meddling kids. And that's why you don't believe in demon possession. Well, not quite. But in many ways, Scooby-Doo is the perfect parable of what it feels like to be a person in a secular age characterized by disenchantment. I actually talked about this a few weeks ago at our Christmas Eve service, although I don't remember my sermon from last week either, so I don't fault you for that. Over the past 500 years, the Western world has moved away from enchantment to disenchantment. 500 years ago, the world was full of supernatural forces, witchcraft, monsters, and ghosts. The world was enchanted, as we say, rife with thin places where the borders between the material and the supernatural worlds touched, and people could become demon-possessed or cursed by witches. The night was full of occult menace and magic. Black cats were bad luck. Things, though, are different today. Because we live in a skeptical age where science and technology define what is true and what is real. There's no room for monsters anymore. Paranormal reality shows on TV looking for ghosts or Bigfoot never seem to come up with these characters. Modern medicine and psychiatric diagnoses, schizophrenia and the like, rather than demon possession, we seek out doctors rather than exorcists for our problems today. And each episode of Scooby-Doo traces this 500-year trajectory we've been on, the movement in our lives from enchantment to disenchantment. Because the first part of a Scooby-Doo episode parallels the era of enchantment, beginning as it does with a supernatural monster, ghoul, or ghost. But as the kids investigate, they grow suspicious and doubtful about it all. As reason and evidence assert themselves, disenchantment grows, and the supernatural creature, the agent of the occult, is eventually revealed to be Mr. Jenkins, the greedy banker. A story that begins with enchantment ends with disenchantment. The supernatural was simply a cover for human greed, theft, and corruption. But there are times where we encounter realities that make us question all this progress, as we call it. A few years ago, it was about a decade now, a minister in Dallas wrote a blog post about an experience in his church that I want to relate and share with you today. He writes, Confession time. Demon possession is something I believe in because it's in the Bible. But I never experienced anything resembling it until Sunday morning. At about 8.30, I came down the stairs to deliver my PowerPoint slides and notes to the clicker and saw a woman holding her son close to her. And she said to me, 
that guy's crazy. And she pointed to a man who was in the chapel, hissing, yelling, gyrating, and looking violent. My first thought was mentally disturbed. So I went into the fellowship hall to find a cell phone and call the cops. Soon enough, I realized that the man has followed me into the fellowship hall where the church is currently worshiping due to construction. His eyes rolled back into his head, yet he could see. He was talking to Satan and confessing to a murder he had committed. Though his eyes were solid white, he could see. And no one was trying to get his attention, or no one who was trying to get his attention could get through to him. And then I spoke and things got interesting. I said, sir, and he whipped around, hissed and roared at me. He said, Jesus, I know that you were the risen one and then picked up a chair and threw it at me. And then he came swinging. I was able to dodge a a couple of punches. And then thankfully, one of our larger uh, brothers happened to be there to subdue the man. But not before he got to turn over all the communion tables and grape juice was flying everywhere. Three men held him down. 911 took 20 minutes to get there. As the cops took him away, he was talking to both Satan and Jesus, eyes still hollow. I don't really know what to say. Except on a day when we were making a major announcement, like the one we were on Sunday, it was creepy. It was creepy that he could only hear me. It was creepy to hear him dialoguing with Satan and Jesus. It was creepy to have someone physically attack me before a service. The whole thing was just creepy. My adrenaline level was just shy of galactic when the service started. We had a time of prayer for the man and for all who'd witnessed it who were rattled. And we went on, we prayed and we sang, we preached and we announced And we applauded, and it was just another Sunday. Here's the question. Do you believe in demon possession or not? Why or why not? And have you experienced something similar to this? Creepy. Some of you have had these kinds of experiences. If we're honest, the secular age isn't wholly categorized by disenchantment. Here and there in the secular, we encounter the transcendent, the holy, And the sacred, we encounter beauty and ugliness and love and meaning. And many of us are skeptics, but we're also haunted by the sense that there's something more, another world at play. Many of us have had unexplainable moments where we felt the presence of evil. We've had moments when nothing could explain the feeling we had other than God's presence being with us. And yet, those are just interesting questions, aren't they? A conversation about if demon possession still occurs today can be the very thing that keeps us from hearing the true challenge of a story like this. And sometimes we get stuck on conversations like this so that we don't have to deal with the way a story calls on us to change. People all over uh, Christendom will argue and debate about whether creation literally happened in six 24-hour days, all the while hiding from the challenge of Genesis 1 through 3 about the ways that we hide from God and the ways that we pursue other routes to fulfillment rather than our relationship with God. Or we could debate this morning about whether Jonah is a a true story that actually happened or a parable that's told, and hide from the challenge of the book that forces us to confront the ways that we fail to love our enemies. See, many of us have become quite adept at dissecting subtleties of the Bible so that we don't have to deal with the ways the Bible convicts us and challenges us to change. So let's go back to the story of Legion. Let's not get stuck on this miracle or on Boo Radley. If you'll remember, To Kill a Mockingbird wasn't actually a story about Boo Radley or Tom Robinson, the man on trial. To Kill a Mockingbird is ultimately a story about the people of Maycomb, Alabama. 
Harper Lee is telling a fictional story, in, story in, every, in order for every reader to think about the ways that we focus our efforts on scapegoats and constructed monsters rather than the evil and exclusion that exists in our own hearts. Because the most interesting and challenging part of the story isn't the one that I already read, it's the verses that follow. So let's pick up again in Luke chapter 8, verse 34. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man for whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. Justice to kill a mockingbird is ultimately not about Boo Radley. This story isn't ultimately about Legion. He's just a scapegoat who's healed by Jesus. A diversion in the story for us. Jesus sees him as he is and he saves him. And it would be a mistake for us to read this story and think about all the people in our lives that we could come up with who need a sermon about healing in this way. Be healed from their demons and without first considering maybe if we need to be healed as well. And if, if they're healed, what would, what would be our response in the story? Because here's the interesting thing. If you pay attention to the Bible closely, people don't like it much when demon-possessed people are healed. Not near as much as we would expect they would be. Did you notice the response of the people in the region to this story? It's really fascinating. When the pig farmers see Legion dressed and in his right mind, they were afraid. That's the language the text tells us. And you better believe those pig farmers are upset because of the financial loss that's occurred as well. Their entire cash crop of pigs is sitting at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. So the pig farmers go and they share this news with all the people of the region. And when everyone comes out to the cemetery to gawk at the boogeyman, they'd all told stories about. They asked Jesus to leave. Why? Because they were overcome with fear. The reasons for the negative response in this story are twofold. And they'll repeat themselves again all throughout scripture. Fear and economic loss. We do crazy things when we're afraid and during times of economic loss. In those moments, we search out for scapegoats when we're afraid and when we're in times of economic loss. So don't get stuck on questions about Scooby-Doo and demon possession. This story is as relevant as ever. In the book of Acts, which is Luke's follow-up to the gospel of Luke, the story is told about the early church. And it's fascinating how these two factors that play in this story play themselves out in other stories as well. In Acts chapter 16, Silas and Paul are in the city of Philippi. And on their way to their place of prayer, they come across a female slave who has been possessed by a spirit. It seems an evil spirit of some kind. And the spirit gives her a gift of predicting the future. And this gift of predicting the future was a gold mine for her owners. Her owners earned a great deal of money from her gift. So every day when Paul and Silas went to the, their, their place of prayer, this woman would shout, these men are servants of the most high God. Who are you who are telling you the way to be saved? And it's funny, I'm sure Paul appreciates this every now and again, but he gets so tired of this day after day that finally he turns around to the woman and casts that spirit out of the woman. And when the women's, a woman's uh, owners realize she's lost her gift of fortune telling, the gift that had given them so much economic security, they get upset. 
And they incite a riot of sorts. And and the crowd beats Paul and Silas with rods and then severely flogs them and, and throws them into prison. Fear and economic loss. They're almost demonic forces. In Acts 19, Paul is in Ephesus and he's back to his old tricks. He's healing people and he's causing evil spirits to be cast out of people. And then there's this interesting story about a guy named Siva who has seven sons. But when the word gets out about this guy, Paul, who's casting out demons, the Greeks living in Ephesus were, as the text says, seized with fear. Some choose to confess their sins and they change their ways and they follow Jesus. Yes, some respond well to this news about the demons being cast out. But when word gets out about Paul's casting out demons, the Greeks living in Ephesus, they're seized with fear. And in response, it's interesting because some respond in fear, some respond in faith. The ones who respond in faith, there's some who practice sorcery in this city. What they did is they brought their scrolls, their sorcery scrolls, and they burned them publicly. And these scrolls were expensive. They totaled up to 50,000 drachmas, which in 2019 is the equivalent of millions of dollars. It's actually 137 years of wages for one single worker. That's the amount of money that's burned when these scrolls are burned up. Fear and economic loss. And apparently this upsets the people of Ephesus because there's a silversmith there named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis. Now, if you remember the story or or the history of the seven great wonders of the world, one of those wonders is in the city of Ephesus, and it's the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. It's a big deal. I want you to listen to this story. Listen to the fear. Listen to the fear of economic loss in Demetrius's voice as he tries to convince his fellow Ephesians of what is at stake with Paul and the ministry there in Ephesus. Acts chapter 19, verse 25 and following. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul is convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious, began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And all of them rushed into the theater together. I've been in that theater before. And as I was in that theater, I remember sitting there thinking about Paul being dragged into this place and the reasons Paul was being dragged into this place because what he's preaching is a threat to this great wonder of the world. What he's preaching is a threat to these idol makers because he's calling out the falsehood of what's being built, of the economic gain that Demetrius and his guildsmen had. Yes, fear and Fear of economic loss can make us do crazy things. So with all that said, let's go back one more time to that scene with Legion, the region of the Gerasenes in Luke chapter 8. Think back to that story for a moment, the stories that were told about this scapegoated ghost ghoul character. 
For a long time, they knew some things about Legion. He preferred to go around without clothes on. They knew his, he made his home among the tombs. And they'd actually gone before and they'd chained him hand and foot and kept guard over the place. The townspeople knew all of this, that this demonic or powerful presence is there. But ultimately, the community was just fine learning to live with the demonic forces nearby. They tolerated, they managed the demonic forces that lived nearby. But now the power of God for good comes to their community. It begins to disturb the way of life that they'd begun to protect, to tolerate, to manage. And even though Jesus uses his power for good, any power that cannot be calculated or managed can be a frightening thing. If Jesus has the power to do this, then there's a lot of questions that come into our minds. What else does he have the power to do? How else might he disrupt the things we've tolerated and managed? See, as much as we pray for God to show up and do wonders, I wonder if some of us have become more comfortable with tolerating and managing sin and the demonic in our lives more than we're comfortable with the uncontrollable power of Jesus that might just change everything in our lives if we invited him to have his way in our lives. Have you thought about this in your own life? About the things we tolerate, the things we manage, the things we chain, and our acceptance of those things. Yes, wanting Jesus to come and change everything, but also scared that if he did, what would our lives look like? Some of us have chained and cornered evil in our lives. It's a sin that we return to, sin we've learned to manage, sin that we're sure others won't find out. Maybe it's a sin that leads to our economic advantage. And we don't like it when anyone convicts us that that sin has to go. We don't like it when Jesus shows up and starts casting out demons. We like Jesus just fine when he forgives our sins. We don't like Jesus when he starts meddling and trying to cast out all the demons because we're not sure we really want them to leave. And as I think about this story in Luke 8, I think about the story in Acts 16, the story in Acts 19, I realize this economic piece needs to be spoken to as well. Jesus says something really interesting in in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Some versions that you may be reading would say, You cannot serve both God and mammon. It's as if God gives money a proper name in this story because it deserves it, because it kind of has that kind of power. Greed is an attractive master. And you can never feed your greed enough. Greed will keep asking and keep demanding. And when we serve at the God of economic security, we will do crazy things. And Jesus says, look, you got to choose when it comes to these things. You can't serve both me and this God called money. And in Acts 16 and Acts 19, people are being healed and they're being saved. And you would think people would be celebrating about this kind of thing, wouldn't you? But when salvation affects people's pocketbooks, they go mad. Same thing's true today. You don't believe in demons? Think that's a thing of 500 years ago or folklore? Just watch people when the stock market plummets. Just pay attention to what happens internally when you get an unexpected bill you didn't expect. If you don't believe in demons, just watch and listen to the way that we find scapegoats and blame outsiders, refugees, immigrants, welfare recipients, when the economy takes a turn. 
To Kill a Mockingbird isn't a story about Boo Radley. It's a commentary on Maycomb, Alabama. And this story is not about Legion. We still have Legions in our own day. We welcome them as long as they don't hurt our pocketbooks or take our jobs. We welcome them until the god Mammon tells us that we ought to create create scapegoats for our fears. Don't let that demonic force cause you to see people who were created in the image of God as less than human and less deserving of aid. The forces of evil are real and active, church. Money is a demonic force that many of us have given our lives over to. And that's why the pig farmers want Jesus to leave their town. And that's why the female slave owners in Acts 16 have Paul and Silas beat and flogged and thrown into prison. And that's why Demetrius the silversmith starts a riot. And so I got to thinking about this and I got to thinking, what is the antidote to this? What's the practice that we put into our lives to ensure that we don't scapegoat others? What's the practice that we put into our lives to ensure that mammon doesn't win out over God in our lives? What do we do? How do we respond? And and the practice I come back to at the end of this message is the practice, the discipline of generosity. If you want to cast out any demonic force in your life that money may have to do in your life, start practicing generosity. Start start giving in ways beyond what you've given before. Start challenging God and stepping up and saying, God, I want to be more generous because I want to cast out this demonic force in our lives. I wonder what it would do to us in our lives if we would commit to that, to see a way this week to respond to the God mammon in a way that would allow us to be generous, to give beyond what we normally do. Many of us have become very comfortable in the ways that we give. Some of us wait for opportunities through letters that come to us from people going on mission trips, or we wait for mission Sunday or or, or Sundays. We have our committed amount that we give, and, and we feel like once we've gotten to a certain place that we're good. But I wonder if this week there's a way for you to step beyond the practice that you've had with generosity. To say, God, I I don't want any of this to be a part of my life. And I want to break those chains because I know that fear and especially fear of economic loss is the very thing that I'm most afraid of. And I wonder if we were to step out in generosity, if we might see those chains broken again. Again, sometimes it's easier to have Jesus forgive our sins than it is for Jesus to begin to meddle with those places that we have safely tamed in our lives, we think. And I, I don't think it's safe to keep demons nearby in cemeteries. Because they break out of chains and they wreak havoc in our lives, whether that's the sin of greed or that's other sins that are involved in our lives, it's not okay to keep it chained. It's important that we call those things out, that we confess them to God and ask for God to break the power they have over our lives. So I want to pray this morning for that to happen in this room this morning. Because my guess is, you know, if you were to think about the cemeteries that live around you, if you were to think about those corners of your heart that have maybe become too strong, those chains that you realize that sin doesn't stay bound to, that you would realize that maybe it would be better if God would come in and would actually remove that, as fearful as that might be. So this morning, I want to pray for each one who wants to confess those things. I have those things in my lives I want to confess this morning as well. I've been challenged as I've been reading this text. What needs to go? What needs to be called out? What doesn't need to be chained next door, but needs to be called out and ask God to bring healing, to bring freedom? So let's pray this morning for all those things in our lives. God, this morning, I thank you for these stories. God, my trust is that that, uh, there are forces at work in this world that we cannot see. And God, you tell us through Paul in 
Ephesians chapter 6 about the armor of God. About all these pieces that we're to equip ourselves with. Because we know that our battles are not against flesh and blood, but they're against the rulers and the powers and the principalities of this dark world. Anytime that we create enemies and they have flesh on, we've mistaken the battle. So this morning, God, if it's unforgiveness that we've linked to a person, I pray you would help us to find the spiritual inner resources to find forgiveness where it's needed. God, for those that have been chained by substance abuse, that have allowed these substances that once brought some kind of joy and pleasure to our lives to trap us and to lead us to all kinds of danger and destruction, I pray for freedom from those strongholds in our lives this morning as well as we confess those. God, for the ways that uh, sex can be a pleasure in our lives, it can also bind us and it can also chain us and it can also destroy the relationships around us. It can kill trust and it it can take us away from you. And so this morning for all the ways that lust has found its chains broken over and over again in our lives, we want to stop putting it in a corner of our lives and we want to cast that out this morning. So God, I pray this morning for all those who are bound in that way, that it would not be another Sunday of just chaining up the beast again that it would be a confession over to you to ask you to do that meddling work, God, to change our lives and to set our hearts back on you and on those that we've committed our lives to. God, for those economic insecurities that we have, where those are really challenging things in the midst of challenging seasons, but God, may we never place our insecurities or our fears uh, on scapegoats around us, but may we deal with that insecurity and may we take our our eyes off of mammon and place them back on you because we know we can't serve two masters. We want to choose to serve you again. God, for all the things I don't even know to name this morning that are in this room that are chained up in the corner cemeteries of our lives, God, we ask that Jesus would come and that Jesus wouldn't just forgive us of these sins, but Jesus would begin to meddle, would begin to tear off chains. And and that when we see these evil things in our lives, God dressed and in their right minds, actually sent into the heart of the sea. And when we're sober again in our lives. God, would you allow those around us not to respond in fear, but to wonder the story that we have of the transformation that's come. And may we in that moment boldly proclaim that we don't have every answer, but we have a story to tell about a God who has changed and shaped our lives. God, this morning, as I look out and I think about this, this body of believers, I know those stories are so present. And yet, Sometimes we don't know when or how to tell those stories. So God, help us to figure out ways to give you the glory and continue to keep our lives clean in those corners of our heart that we sometimes leave things changed. And that we would give you the glory and the honor and the majesty and the power and tell your story of good news throughout this world today. I believe you're still casting out demons. And I pray that it would be done today in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. We hope this message helps you in your walk to find real significance in Jesus. Connect with us on Facebook. You can find and like our page at Greenville Oaks. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.